Chapter Two of Mr. Gilfil's Love Story from Scenes of Clerical Life by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. Chapter Two. It is the evening of the twenty-first of June, seventeen eighty-eight. The day has been bright and sultry, and the sun will still be more than an hour above the horizon. But his rays, broken by the leafy fretwork of the elms that border the park, no longer prevent two ladies from carrying out their cushions and embroidery and seating themselves to work on the lawn in front of Cheverel Manor. The soft turf gives way even under the fairy tread of the younger lady, whose small stature and slim figure rest on the tiniest of full-grown feet. She trips along before the elder, carrying the cushions, which she places in the favorite spot just on the slope by a clump of laurels, where they can see the sunbeams sparkling among the water-lilies, and can be themselves seen from the dining-room windows. She has deposited the cushions and now turns round, so that you may have a full view of her as she stands waiting the slower advance of the elder lady. You are at once arrested by her large dark eyes, which in their inexpressive unconscious beauty resemble the eyes of a fawn, and it is only by an effort of attention that you notice the absence of bloom on her young cheek, and the southern yellowish tint of her small neck and face rising above the little black lace kerchief, which prevents the too immediate comparison of her skin with her white muslin gown. Her large eyes seem all the more striking because the dark hair is gathered away from her face under a little cap set at the top of her head, with a cherry-colored bow on one side. The elder lady, who is advancing towards the cushions, is cast in a very different mould of womanhood. She is tall, and looks the taller because her powdered hair is turned backward over a toupee, and surmounted by lace and ribbons. She is nearly fifty, but her complexion is still fresh and beautiful, with the beauty of an auburn blonde. Her proud, pouting lips, and her head thrown a little backward as she walks, give an expression of hauteur which is not contradicted by the cold grey eye. The tucked-in kerchief, rising full over the low tight bodice of her blue dress, sets off the majestic form of her bust, and she treads the lawn as if she were one of Sir Joshua Reynolds' stately ladies, who had suddenly stepped from her frame to enjoy the evening cool. "'Put the cushions lower, Caterina, that we may not have so much sun upon us,' she called out, in a tone of authority, when still at some distance. Caterina obeyed, and they sat down, making two bright patches of red and white and blue on the green background of the laurels and the lawn, which would look none the less pretty in a picture because one of the women's hearts was rather cold and the other rather sad. And a charming picture Cheverel Manor would have made that evening if some English Watteau had been there to paint it. The castellated house of grey-tinted stone, with the flickering sunbeams sending dashes of golden light across the many-shaped panes in the mullioned windows, and a great beech leaning athwart one of the flanking towers, and breaking with its dark flattened boughs the too formal symmetry of the front. The broad gravel walk winding on the right, by a row of tall pines alongside the pool. On the left, branching out among swelling grassy mounds, surmounted by clumps of trees where the red trunk of the Scotch fir glows in the descending sunlight against the bright green of limes and acacias. 
the great pool where a pair of swans are swimming lazily with one leg tucked under a wing and where the open water-lilies lie calmly accepting the kisses of the fluttering light-sparkles the lawn with its smooth emerald greenness sloping down to the rougher and browner herbage of the park from which it is invisibly fenced by a little stream that winds away from the pool and disappears under a wooden bridge in the distant pleasure-ground and on this lawn our two ladies whose part in the landscape the painter standing at a favourable point of view in the park would represent with a few little dabs of red and white and blue seen from the great gothic windows of the dining-room they had much more definiteness of outline and were distinctly visible to the three gentlemen sipping their claret there as two fair women in whom all three had a personal interest these gentlemen were a group worth considering attentively but any one entering that dining-room for the first time would perhaps have had his attention even more strongly arrested by the room itself which was so bare of furniture that it impressed one with its architectural beauty like a cathedral a piece of matting stretched from door to door a bit of worn carpet under the dining-table and a sideboard in a deep recess did not detain the eye for a moment from the lofty groined ceiling with its richly carved pendants all of creamy white relieved here and there by touches of gold on one side this lofty ceiling was supported by pillars and arches beyond which a lower ceiling a miniature copy of the higher one covered the square projection which with its three large pointed windows formed the central feature of the building the room looked less like a place to dine in than a piece of space enclosed simply for the sake of beautiful outline and the small dining-table with the party round it seemed an odd and insignificant accident rather than anything connected with the original purpose of the apartment but examined closely that group was far from insignificant for the eldest who was reading in the newspaper the last portentous proceedings of the french parliaments and turning with occasional comments to his young companions was as fine a specimen of the old english gentleman as could well have been found in those venerable days of cocked hats and pigtails his dark eyes sparkled under projecting brows made more prominent by bushy grizzled eyebrows but any apprehension of severity excited by these penetrating eyes and by a somewhat aquiline nose was allayed by the good-natured lines about the mouth which retained all its teeth and its vigour of expression in spite of sixty winters the forehead sloped a little from the projecting brows and its peaked outline was made conspicuous by the arrangement of the profusely powdered hair drawn backward and gathered into a pigtail he sat in a small hard chair which did not admit the slightest approach to a lounge and which showed to advantage the flatness of his back and the breadth of his chest in fact sir christopher cheverel was a splendid old gentleman as any one may see who enters the saloon at cheverel manor where his full-length portrait taken when he was fifty hangs side by side with that of his wife the stately lady seated on the lawn looking at sir christopher you would at once have been inclined to hope that he had a full-grown son and heir but perhaps you would have wished that it might not prove to be the young man on his right hand 
in whom a certain resemblance to the baronet in the contour of the nose and brow seemed to indicate a family relationship if this young man had been less elegant in his person he would have been remarked for the elegance of his dress but the perfections of his slim well-proportioned figure were so striking that no one but a tailor could notice the perfections of his velvet coat and his small white hands with their blue veins and taper fingers quite eclipsed the beauty of his lace ruffles the face however it was difficult to say why was certainly not pleasing nothing could be more delicate than the blonde complexion its bloom set off by the powdered hair than the veined overhanging eyelids which gave an indolent expression to the hazel eyes nothing more finely cut than the transparent nostril and the short upper lip perhaps the chin and lower jaw were too small for an irreproachable profile but the defect was on the side of that delicacy and finesse which was the distinctive characteristic of the whole person and which was carried out in the clear brown arch of the eyebrows and the marble smoothness of the sloping forehead impossible to say that this face was not eminently handsome yet for the majority both of men and women it was destitute of charm women disliked eyes that seemed to be indolently accepting admiration instead of rendering it and men especially if they had a tendency to clumsiness in the nose and ankles were inclined to think this antinous in a pigtail a confounded puppy i fancy that was frequently the inward interjection of the reverend maynard gilfil who was seated on the opposite side of the dining-table though mr gilfil's legs and profile were not at all of a kind to make him peculiarly alive to the impertinence and frivolity of personal advantages his healthy open face and robust limbs were after an excellent pattern for everyday wear and in the opinion of mr bates the north country gardener would have become regimentals a fain sate better than the peaky features and slight form of captain wybrow notwithstanding that this young gentleman as sir christopher's nephew and destined heir had the strongest hereditary claim on the gardener's respect and was undeniably clean-limbed but alas human longings are perversely obstinate and to the man whose mouth is watering for a peach it is of no use to offer the largest vegetable marrow mr gilfil was not sensitive to mr bates's opinion whereas he was sensitive to the opinion of another person who by no means shared mr bates's preference who the other person was it would not have required a very keen observer to guess from a certain eagerness in mr gilfil's glance as that little figure in white tripped along the lawn with the cushions captain wybrow too was looking in the same direction but his handsome face remained handsome and nothing more ah said sir christopher looking up from his paper there's my lady ring for coffee anthony we'll go and join her and the little monkey tina shall give us a song the coffee presently appeared brought not as usual by the footman in scarlet and drab but by the old butler in threadbare but well-brushed black who as he was placing it on the table said if you please sir christopher there's the widow hardtop a-cryin i the still-room and begs leave to see your honour 
i have given markham full orders about the widow hartop said sir christopher in a sharp decided tone i have nothing to say to her your honour pleaded the butler rubbing his hands and putting on an additional coating of humility the poor woman's dreadful overcome and says she can't sleep a wink this blessed night without seeing your honour and she begs you to pardon the great freedom she's took to come at this time she cries fit to break her heart ay ay water pays no tax well show her into the library coffee dispatched the two young men walked out through the open window and joined the ladies on the lawn while sir christopher made his way to the library solemnly followed by rupert his pet bloodhound who in his habitual place at the baronet's right hand behaved with great urbanity during dinner but when the cloth was drawn invariably disappeared under the table apparently regarding the claret-jug as a mere human weakness which he winked at but refused to sanction the library lay but three steps from the dining-room on the other side of a cloistered and matted passage the oriel window was overshadowed by the great beech and this with the flat heavily carved ceiling and the dark hue of the old books that lined the walls made the room look sombre especially on entering it from the dining-room with its aerial curves and cream-coloured fretwork touched with gold as sir christopher opened the door a jet of brighter light fell on a woman in a widow's dress who stood in the middle of the room and made the deepest of curtsies as he entered she was a buxom woman approaching forty her eyes red with the tears which had evidently been absorbed by the handkerchief gathered into a damp ball in her right hand now mrs hartop said sir christopher taking out his gold snuff-box and tapping the lid what have you to say to me markham has delivered you a notice to quit i suppose oh yes your honour and that's the reason why i've come i hope your honour'll think better on it and not turn me and my poor children out of the farm where my husband always paid his rent as regular as the day come nonsense i should like to know what good it will do you and your children to stay on a farm and lose every farthing your husband has left you instead of selling your stock and going into some little place where you can keep your money together it is very well known to every tenant of mine that i never allow widows to stay on their husbands farms oh sir christopher if you would consider when i've sold the hay and corn and all the live things and paid the debts and put the money out to use i shall have hardly enough to keep our souls and bodies together and how can i rear my boys and put him prentice they must go for day labourers and their father a man with as good belongings as any on your honour's estate and never threshed his wheat afore it was well o the rick nor sold the straw off his farm nor nothing ask all the farmers round here if there was a steadier soberer man than my husband as attended ripstone market and he says bessie says he them was his last words you'll make a shift to manage the farm if sir christopher'll let you stay on pooh-pooh said sir christopher mrs hartop's sobs having interrupted her pleadings now listen to me and try to understand a little common sense you are about as able to manage the farm as your best milk cow you'll be obliged to have some managing man who will either cheat you out of your money or wheedle you into marrying him oh your honour i was never that sort of woman and nobody has known it on me very likely not because you were never a widow before a woman's always silly enough but she's never quite as great a fool as she can be until she puts on a widow's cap 
now just ask yourself how much the better you will be for staying on your farm at the end of four years when you've got through your money and let your farm run down and are in arrears for half your rent or perhaps have got some great hulky fellow for a husband who swears at you and kicks your children indeed sir christopher i know a deal of farmin and was brought up i the thick in it as you might say and there was my husband's great-aunt managed a farm for twenty year and left legacies to all her nephews and nieces and even to my husband as was then a babe unborn pshaw a woman six feet high with a squint and sharp elbows i dare say a man in petticoats not a rosy-cheeked widow like you mrs hartop indeed your honour i never heard of her squintin and they said as she might have been married o'er and o'er again to people as had no call to hanker after her money ay ay that's what you all think every man that looks at you wants to marry you and would like you the better the more children you have and the less money but it is useless to talk and cry i have good reasons for my plans and never alter them what you have to do is to take the best of your stock and to look out for some little place to go to when you leave the hollows now go back to mrs bellamy's room and ask her to give you a dish of tea mrs hartop understanding from sir christopher's tone that he was not to be shaken curtsied low and left the library while the baronet seating himself at his desk in the oriel window wrote the following letter mr markham take no steps about letting crowsfoot cottage as i intend to put in the widow hartop when she leaves her farm and if you will be here at eleven on saturday morning i will ride round with you and settle about making some repairs and see about adding a bit of land to the take as she will want to keep a cow and some pigs yours faithfully christopher cheverell after ringing the bell and ordering this letter to be sent sir christopher walked out to join the party on the lawn but finding the cushions deserted he walked on to the eastern front of the building where by the side of the grand entrance was the large bow-window of the saloon opening on to the gravel sweep and looking towards a long vista of undulating turf bordered by tall trees which seeming to unite itself with the green of the meadows and a grassy road through a plantation only terminated with the gothic arch of a gateway in the far distance the bow-window was open and sir christopher stepping in found the group he sought examining the progress of the unfinished ceiling it was in the same style of florid pointed gothic as the dining-room but more elaborate in its tracery which was like petrified lace-work picked out with delicate and varied colouring about a fourth of it still remained uncoloured and under this part were scaffolding ladders and tools otherwise the spacious saloon was empty of furniture and seemed to be a grand gothic canopy for the group of five human figures standing in the centre francesco has been getting on a little better the last day or two said sir christopher as he joined the party he's a sad lazy dog and i fancy he has a knack of sleeping as he stands with his brushes in his hands but i must spur him on or we may not have the scaffolding cleared away before the bride comes if you show dexterous generalship in your wooing eh anthony and take your magdeburg quickly ah sir a siege is known to be one of the most tedious operations in war said captain wybrow with an easy smile not when there's a traitor within the walls in the shape of a soft heart and that there will be if beatrice has her mother's tenderness as well as her mother's beauty what do you think sir christopher said lady cheverel who seemed to wince a little under her husband's reminiscences 
of hanging Gercino's Sibyl over that door when we put up the pictures. It is rather lost in my sitting-room. Very good, my love, answered Sir Christopher, in a tone of punctiliously polite affection. If you like to part with the ornament from your own room, it will show admirably here. Our portraits by Sir Joshua will hang opposite the window, and the transfiguration at that end. You see, Anthony, I am leaving no good places on the walls for you and your wife. We shall turn you with your faces to the wall in the gallery, and you may take your revenge on us by and by. While this conversation was going on, Mr. Gilfil turned to Caterina and said, I like the view from this window better than any other in the house. She made no answer, and he saw that her eyes were filling with tears. So he added, Suppose we walk out a little. Sir Christopher and my lady seem to be occupied. Caterina complied silently, and they turned down one of the gravel walks that led, after many windings under tall trees and among grassy openings, to a large enclosed flower-garden. Their walk was perfectly silent, for Maynard Gilfil knew that Caterina's thoughts were not with him, and that she had been long used to make him endure the weight of those moods which she carefully hid from others. They reached the flower-garden, and turned mechanically in at the gate that opened through a high thick hedge, on an expanse of brilliant colour which, after the green shades they had passed through, startled the eye like flames. The effect was assisted by an undulation of the ground, which gradually descended from the entrance gate, and then rose again towards the opposite end, crowned by an orangery. The flowers were glowing with their evening splendours. Verbenas and heliotropes were sending up their finest incense, it seemed a gala where all was happiness and brilliancy, and misery could find no sympathy. This was the effect it had on Caterina. As she wound among the beds of gold and blue and pink, where the flowers seemed to be looking at her with wondering elf-like eyes, knowing nothing of sorrow, the feeling of isolation in her wretchedness overcame her, and the tears which had been before trickling slowly down her pale cheeks now gushed forth accompanied with sobs and yet there was a loving human being close beside her whose heart was aching for hers who was possessed by the feeling that she was miserable and that he was helpless to soothe her but she was too much irritated by the idea that his wishes were different from hers that he rather regretted the folly of her hopes than the probability of their disappointment, to take any comfort in his sympathy. Caterina, like the rest of us, turned away from sympathy which she suspected to be mingled with criticism, as the child turns away from the sweetmeat in which it suspects imperceptible medicine. "'Dear Caterina, I think I hear voices,' said Mr. Gilfil. "'They may be coming this way.' She checked herself like one accustomed to conceal her emotions, and ran rapidly to the other end of the garden, where she seemed occupied in selecting a rose. Presently Lady Cheverel entered, leaning on the arm of Captain Wybrow, and followed by Sir Christopher. The party stopped to admire the tiers of geraniums near the gate, and in the meantime Caterina tripped back with a moss rosebud in her hand, and, going up to Sir Christopher, said, there, Padrancello, there is a nice rose for your buttonhole. 
ah you black-eyed monkey he said fondly stroking her cheek so you have been running off with maynard either to torment or coax him an inch or two deeper into love come come i want you to sing us ho perduto before we sit down to piquet anthony goes to-morrow you know you must warble him into the right sentimental lover's mood that he may acquit himself well at bath he put her little arm under his and calling to lady cheverel come henrietta led the way towards the house the party entered the drawing-room which with its oriel window corresponded to the library in the other wing and had also a flat ceiling heavy with carving and blazonry but the window being unshaded and the walls hung with full-length portraits of knights and dames in scarlet white and gold it had not the sombre effect of the library here hung the portrait of sir anthony cheverel who in the reign of charles the second was the renovator of the family splendour which had suffered some declension from the early brilliancy of that chevreuil who came over with the conqueror a very imposing personage was this sir anthony standing with one arm akimbo and one fine leg and foot advanced evidently with a view to the gratification of his contemporaries and posterity you might have taken off his splendid peruke and his scarlet cloak which was thrown backward from his shoulders without annihilating the dignity of his appearance and he had known how to choose a wife too for his lady hanging opposite to him with her sunny brown hair drawn away in bands from her mild grave face and falling in two large rich curls on her snowy gently sloping neck which shamed the harsher hue and outline of her white satin robe was a fit mother of large-acred airs in this room tea was served and here every evening as regularly as the great clock in the courtyard with deliberate bass tones struck nine sir christopher and lady cheverel sat down to piquet until half-past ten when mr gilfil read prayers to the assembled household in the chapel but now it was not near nine and caterina must sit down to the harpsichord and sing sir christopher's favourite airs from gluck's orfeo an opera which for the happiness of that generation was then to be heard on the london stage it happened this evening that the sentiment of these airs che faro senza euridice and ho perduto il bel sambiante in both of which the singer pours out his yearning after his lost love came very close to caterina's own feeling but her emotion instead of being a hindrance to her singing gave her additional power her singing was what she could do best it was her one point of superiority in which it was probable she would excel the high-born beauty whom anthony was to woo and her love her jealousy her pride her rebellion against her destiny made one stream of passion which welled forth in the deep rich tones of her voice she had a rare contralto which lady cheverel who had high musical taste had been careful to preserve her from straining excellent caterina said lady cheverel as there was a pause after the wonderful linked sweetness of Kefaro i never heard you sing that so well once more it was repeated and then came ho perduto which sir christopher encored in spite of the clock just striking nine 
when the last note was dying out he said there's a clever black-eyed monkey now bring out the table for piquet caterina drew out the table and placed the cards then with her rapid fairy suddenness of motion threw herself on her knees and clasped sir christopher's knee he bent down stroked her cheek and smiled caterina that is foolish said lady cheverel i wish you would leave off those stage-player's antics she jumped up arranged the music on the harpsichord and then seeing the baronet and his lady seated at piquet quietly glided out of the room captain wybrow had been leaning near the harpsichord during the singing and the chaplain had thrown himself on a sofa at the end of the room they both now took up a book mr gilfil chose the last number of the gentleman's magazine captain wybrow stretched on an ottoman near the door opened faublas and there was perfect silence in the room which ten minutes before was vibrating to the passionate tones of caterina she had made her way along the cloistered passages now lighted here and there by a small oil-lamp to the grand staircase which led directly to a gallery running along the whole eastern side of the building where it was her habit to walk when she wished to be alone the bright moonlight was streaming through the windows throwing into strange light and shadow the heterogeneous objects that lined the long walls greek statues and busts of roman emperors low cabinets filled with curiosities natural and antiquarian tropical birds and huge horns of beasts hindu gods and strange shells swords and daggers and bits of chain armor roman lamps and tiny models of greek temples and above all these queer old family portraits of little boys and girls once the hope of the cheverels with close-shaven heads imprisoned in stiff ruffs of faded pink-faced ladies with rudimentary features and highly developed head-dresses of gallant gentlemen with high hips high shoulders and red pointed beards here on rainy days sir christopher and his lady took their promenade and here billiards were played but in the evening it was forsaken by all except caterina and sometimes one other person she paced up and down in the moonlight her pale face and thin white-robed form making her look like the ghost of some former lady cheverel come to revisit the glimpses of the moon by and by she paused opposite the broad window above the portico and looked out on the long vista of turf and trees now stretching chill and saddened in the moonlight suddenly a breath of warmth and roses seemed to float towards her and an arm stole gently round her waist while a soft hand took up her tiny fingers caterina felt an electric thrill and was motionless for one long moment then she pushed away the arm and hand and turning round lifted up to the face that hung over her, her eyes full of tenderness and reproach the fawn-like unconsciousness was gone and in that one look were the ground tones of poor little caterina's nature intense love and fierce jealousy why do you push me away tina said captain wybrow in a half whisper are you angry with me for what a hard fate puts upon me would you have me cross my uncle who has done so much for us both in his dearest wish 
you know i have duties we both have duties before which feeling must be sacrificed yes yes said caterina stamping her foot and turning away her head don't tell me what i know already there was a voice speaking in caterina's mind to which she had never yet given vent that voice said continually why did he make me love him why did he let me know he loved me if he knew all the while that he couldn't brave everything for my sake then love answered he was led on by the feeling of the moment as you have been caterina and now you ought to help him to do what is right then the voice rejoined it was a slight matter to him he doesn't much mind giving you up he will soon love that beautiful woman and forget a poor little pale thing like you thus love anger and jealousy were struggling in that young soul besides tina continued captain wybrow in still gentler tones i shall not succeed miss Escher very likely prefers some one else and you know i have the best will in the world to fail i shall come back a hapless bachelor perhaps to find you already married to the good-looking chaplain who is over head and ears in love with you poor sir christopher has made up his mind that you're to have guiltful why will you speak so you speak from your own want of feeling go away from me don't let us part in anger tina all this may pass away it's as likely as not that i may never marry any one at all these palpitations may carry me off and you may have the satisfaction of knowing that i shall never be anybody's bridegroom who knows what may happen i may be my own master before i get into the bonds of holy matrimony and be able to choose my little singing-bird why should we distress ourselves before the time it is easy to talk so when you are not feeling said caterina the tears flowing fast it is bad to bear now whatever may come after but you don't care about my misery don't i tina said anthony in his tenderest tones again stealing his arm round her waist and drawing her towards him poor tina was the slave of this voice and touch grief and resentment retrospect and foreboding vanished all life before and after melted away in the bliss of that moment as anthony pressed his lips to hers captain wybrow thought poor little tina it would make her very happy to have me but she is a mad little thing at that moment a loud bell startled caterina from her trance of bliss it was the summons to prayers in the chapel and she hastened away leaving captain wybrow to follow slowly it was a pretty sight that family assembled to worship in the little chapel where a couple of wax candles threw a mild faint light on the figures kneeling there in the desk was mr gilfil with his face a shade graver than usual on his right hand kneeling on their red velvet cushions were the master and mistress of the household in their elderly dignified beauty on his left the youthful grace of anthony and caterina in all the striking contrast of their colouring he with his exquisite outline and rounded fairness like an olympian god she dark and tiny like a gypsy changeling then there were the domestics kneeling on red-covered forms the women headed by mrs bellamy the natty little old housekeeper in snowy cap and apron 
and mrs sharp my lady's maid of somewhat vinegar aspect and flaunting attire the men by mr bellamy the butler and mr warren sir christopher's venerable valet a few collects from the evening service was what mr gilfil habitually read ending with the simple petition lighten our darkness and then they all rose the servants turning to curtsey and bow as they went out the family returned to the drawing-room said good-night to each other and dispersed all to speedy slumber except two caterina only cried herself to sleep after the clock had struck twelve mr gilfil lay awake still longer thinking that very likely caterina was crying captain wybrow having dismissed his valet at eleven was soon in a soft slumber his face looking like a fine cameo in high relief on the slightly indented pillow End of chapter 2 of Mr. Gilfil's Love Story